Hi there, and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm KW Taylor. This week, we're talking about the NBC series Superstore and the History Channel series The Curse of Oak Island. And we're going to do a scary movie wrap up. So lots of visual media today. Yes. Yes. You excited? I am very excited. Do you want to tell us about Superstore first? Yeah. So have you watched this at all? Do you watch it? I have. Yeah. I watched the first like three seasons and then I just sort of lost track of it. But I, it's very enjoyable. Yeah. I, I've started to really like it. It's kind of like, it reminds me a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I was kind of met on in the first couple seasons, but then it got really, really good. I think Superstore is similarly sort of hitting its stride. It's a sitcom on NBC. It's been going on since the fall of 2015. And they have six seasons now. And basically, it's just employees working in a fictional big box store called Cloud Nine in um, St. Louis. And Cloud Nine stores in fiction of, um, actually, it transcends NBC. I think there's even some non-NBC shows that include it. But Cloud Nine is supposed to be a national store. And a bunch of other shows reference it, like Good Girls. They go to mm-hmm. Cloud9 all the time, even though that's in <laughs> Detroit. So anyway, it's just kind of fun. It's sort of an Oceanic Airlines sort of thing. <laughs> and it focuses for the first few seasons on the character Amy Sosa, played by America Ferreira, and a new guy working at the store, Jonah Sims, played by Ben Feldman. There's also a assistant manager, Dina, played by Lauren Ash, and Garrett, who is like a customer service representative, played by Colton Dunn. There's a lot of other characters. One of my, I really enjoy Glenn Sturgis was a store manager for a while, played by Mark McKinney from Kids in the Hall. And he's, he uses a very, very strange voice that kind of, it's <laughs> is kind, that not his real voice? That is not his real voice. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a very specific way of speaking. It reminds me a lot of how Moira Rose on Schitt's Creek has this mm-hmm. very specific, strange, almost accent. And it's not Catherine O'Hara's real voice at all. And it's very <laughs> grating in the beginning, but it kind of eventually, it just seems normal. And lots of recurring characters. It's a, it's a huge ensemble. And it's mostly just about, they, they very rarely leave the department store. So it's very focused on, it is a classic workplace comedy. And I do like those a lot. Mm-hmm. And Amy and Jonah have kind of a flirtatious relationship. And some of the other, well, Dina and Garrett kind of have a strange mirror image relationship <laughs> that's not nearly as healthy and whatnot. So part of what I really like about it is that it feels especially as time goes on and as issues surrounding employment exploitation in the real world and the ubiquity and kind of like overwhelming capitalism that we see with big box or chain stores. It really permeates the plots of the show. And they really get into it with, you know, unionization and wage rights and workers' rights. And there's a character named Mateo, played by Nico Santos, who it turns out he's an undocumented immigrant, and he ends up getting arrested by ICE at the end of one of the seasons, and it turns very dramatic. Oh, wow. And there's some issues around that. There's also issues around uh, when the company is taken over by a, a new corporation, there's a whole bunch of changes, and it leads workers to feel like they're being really, really mistreated, and they try to unionize. And And yeah, so it's very, very real. It's very, like real stuff that real retail workers go through and experience. And Mm -hmm. there's this pull between liking your job and not liking your job and also feeling like what's the level of kind of bowing to your district manager or like some other entity above you 
versus caring about the people who work in your local store. So as somebody who has worked retail and worked retail for large corporations, I absolutely feel that. Mm -hmm. I worked at a bookstore that used to be independent. And then a little bit before I started working there, it got taken over by a large big box bookstore chain that will remain unnamed. (laughs) And from talking to the people who worked there through the transition, it really, really changed things and not for the better. So so yeah, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for these people. I really feel them. And then in the current season, it did it did return for a new season post-COVID. They are addressing COVID. Their current season starts out with flashbacks to the early days of the pandemic. So they're showing them wearing masks. They're showing them being a little bit farther apart from each other. And they do have the characters take their masks off when it's hard for the viewers to hear them very well, which is not great. But I like that they're showing people like wiping down shopping carts and Mm -hmm. their cafe is closed and they're doing all these things that you really would do in a real store. It's a it's a much better representation of real pandemic life in an essential business than some other. There's another show that I will not mention that I was very disappointed that their season premiere included a lot of mask fails and very, very shoddy, shoddily addressing the pandemic in ways that I felt were very irresponsible. And Mm-hmm. I think Superstore is actually doing a reasonably good job and showing to and helping remind all of us that, you know, we're all living through this, but some people are still working in a in a way that is fairly normal. They do still get to see their coworkers. And it is kind of a nice thing to see these sort of parasocial relationships with, that we have with our favorite sitcoms and having it return at least, even if it's in a kind of, you know, it's it's the same way we're all returning to things. I would prefer to be able to see that and and kind of be in there, be in that journey with them. So I like that they've come back and I'm sure they're doing good, you know, filming in a bubble and whatnot. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see if you're not working retail during the pandemic, what they really are going through. And it's not always perfect or easy or, you know, what you want to be doing, but you're getting it done. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to have to go back to that. I just you know, it's one of those shows that I really like to binge and then I w- would lose track of it for a little while. Mm-hmm. And I haven't gotten back to season four yet. So I I will do that. And I haven't decided if I am ready yet to watch shows that do address COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Part of me just kind of wants to use fiction as an escape right now. Yeah. But that's good that they are being responsible with masks and wiping everything down and stuff. Uh-huh. I was get, going to ask you, because you've watched a few shows now that have their actors in masks. Uh-huh. I haven't watched any, uh-huh. although I saw some at the gym the other day. Uh-huh. It just got me curious. Is the dialogue understandable still, or do you find that it's a little bit harder to understand them with the masks on? So I've really actually only watched two. And most I'm noticing that most actors are using like the paper surgical style masks rather than cloth masks. Okay. And that's probably because those are easier to hear in. I personally, I've used, I mean, for myself, I've used, I prefer cloth masks. I think they're more comfortable. It is very easy to do a disposable paper mask in a pinch and I've got a box full and I, I do use those on occasion, but I find they get very, they get very sweaty and uncomfortable very quickly. <laughs> I think they're not <laughs> meant to be used for very long. So I think it's telling that they're, that they are all mostly using the paper masks because they are thinner. And I'm sure that, you know, the voice projection is a little bit better in them. 
I have seen singers have developed a mask that sits away from the face, but it is cloth. And okay. it looks like it has a little almost kind of a trumpet in it. <laughs> but I'm sure that that would be more for performances where where people know that you're using it for that reason. And I'm sure yeah. that you wouldn't use that on a TV show where it's supposed to be portraying more normal people that wouldn't be sure. wearing those. So yeah, in both of the shows that I watch, they're all using the little blue disposables. And I don't, okay. I don't find it that it's hard to understand them, especially in Superstore. They will do scenes where like they're in the back room and people aren't wearing the mask or they have it pulled down or they have it on their ear, but they're always kind of spaced far apart in those scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm sure there's some contractual thing with actors where they do need to have their face appear in the episode. <laughs> but the, the show that I watched that I really hated the way they portrayed it, they were constantly taking them off for almost no reason. And that was not okay. Right. If you are in a real workplace, and I'm just giving this as a piece of advice for all of our listeners, if you're in a real workplace and you are far enough away from your fellow employees and you do want to take your mask off, apparently that is okay. But you need to make sure that you're not doing it for very long and that your social distance is far enough away that you're not going to get droplets. So that will be, that's my little PSA. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I would probably add, you might want to check to see if your coworkers are okay with that too. Yes, yes. I would not just willy-nilly do that. If it's allowed and everybody's cool with it, you know, be responsible. But I also do think that you should probably just keep your mask on all day at work, but that's just me. Yep. Well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. In a different sort of quarantine viewing experience, <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching The Curse of Oak Island from the History Channel, and I've mentioned it here before, but I haven't really talked in depth about it. It was just sort of one of those things I started watching at the beginning of quarantine, because what better time to start a seven season long show, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this show started in 2014, and the eighth season just started airing, I think like a week or two ago, which was cool because I wasn't quite sure if they would have a season this year. I haven't looked into it at all because I'm still actually on se season seven, so I didn't want to spoil myself by looking up <laughs> what their <laughs> safety measures were for the summer, because mm -hmm. they usually film over the summer. But to get back to the beginning, because <laughs> <laughs> you got to know who's filming over the summer. Yeah. So the main people in this show are two brothers named Rick and Marty Lagina. And I want to be best friends with them. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a documentary series. This is a reality yes, show. This is okay. a reality show. It's centered on Oak Island in Nova Scotia, Canada. And do you know anything about the history of Oak Island? Uh, a little bit. I know there's there's some mysterious stuff and some hidden things, but I'm not yeah. entirely clear on what they are. Yeah, that's cool. There are rumors that a treasure is hidden there. So it's basically a treasure hunting show. Mm -hmm. And I was I was trying to talk to one of my coworkers about it the other day, and he was just like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> that sounds really weird." And I was like, "No, you don't understand. It's like they're not just hunting for treasure. There's like puzzles, and there there's definitely evidence of an older presence there. And it's just like it's more about trying to figure out who this stuff was put there by and why it was put there, rather than finding actual treasure, right? Mm -hmm. Okay." So in 1795, these three like late teenage boys, they see some lights from 
I think they're on the mainland, so they see them from, or they see them on Oak Island, and they go over there, and they find a large tree with a depression under it, and they start digging. Uh-huh. And ten feet down, they find a platform of wooden logs, which okay. is weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very weird. Very weird. So they get some friends, and it takes them a couple of days or weeks, I'm not quite sure. But they continue to dig down, and every 10 feet, there's another platform of logs. And 90 feet down, they find the platform, but they find a stone on top of it, and there are some weird markings on it. And in the history of Oak Island, people have claimed to decode the stone, and many people assume or believe that it says something like, Another 90 feet down is a million dollars or something crazy (laughs) like that. I mean, it's something to indicate that there's treasure, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was in 1795, and these boys bought land on the island. And I think at least one of them, Daniel McGinnis, stayed there for a long time trying to dig for this treasure. Uh And since then, there have been different companies set up to go and dig on this island and see if they could find treasure. Oh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was part of one before he was president. What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the reason no one has found it yet is once you get down to a certain level, the shaft will fill with water because there are booby-trapped flood tunnels around this area. Right. So that's super intriguing to me. I'm just like, who did this? Why did they do this? What's (laughs) down there? What are they hiding? (laughs) And Rick... When he was 11 years old, read this article about Oak Island, and he has just been fascinated ever since then. Uh-huh. So they're in their, like, 60s now, and Rick and Marty, they, like, bought most of Oak Island. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, we're going to do the summer project where we go and dig and, and see if we could find treasure, see if we could find answers. And Rick is very, very interested in answers over the treasure. Uh-huh. I didn't really know, like, I only started watching it this year, and I don't even know if they knew how long this was going to go, because even at the end of the first season, Marty was like, yeah, I think we should call it quits. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone was like, no. So (laughs) basically every summer, just a group of guys come to the island and try different things. But Marty has a business partner, Craig, who's stepson comes along and later his son when he gets a little bit older Uh so they come along marty's son alex and the guy's nephew peter so they they sort of amass this group of people and each season as they go on they like attract more people to them so they've got like they've got laird who's an archaeologist and they've got a couple geologists charles is a local historian (laughs) And one of my favorite additions is Gary, who is, uh, (laughs) he's British and he's a metal detector person. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds really silly, but basically like when they dig stuff, he'll go around with his metal detector, but he's so, he's such a character because he's got his little accent (laughs) and I'll say, (laughs) he'll say things like, Ooh, that's a Bobby Dazzler. (laughs) (laughs) and 
He's got this special shirt that he wears. Not a special shirt, but he's got the shirt that he wears where anything like really special goes in his top pocket. And he's got like all these pouches that he wears on his belt and stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you find something really cool, he's like, well, that's a top pocket find. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this is the complete like. This is the anathema to my Real Housewives shows. <laughs> like, like this is the exact opposite of that, and it's adorable. <laughs> I was thinking about that yesterday because <laughs> we watched a couple episodes, and I was like, "Oh, this is my Real Housewives." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm basically obsessed with the show. But one of the things that I think is really cool is. There are so many theories about Oak Island, mm-hmm. and every season they will bring on people to share their theories, mm. which is always a lot of fun, even if they're like completely out there. <laughs> <laughs> I already said the reason that it's so compelling is that they're just weird, anomalous stuff like the flood tunnels, but there are other things like on the surface of the island, this guy named Fred Nolan who used to live there and he was a surveyor so he was he was also looking for the treasure because he was a surveyor he found that there are these huge boulders well not huge very large rocks mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're all like equidistant and they form the shape of a cross what yeah so they're just like weird things that you're like that can't be accidental and people will come and be like, well, the cross fits into like this shape and that means you go out northwest 70 paces and like all this, <laughs> all this stuff. And there is a swamp area. Mm-hmm. There's a theory that Oak Island was once two islands and someone came and sailed their ship into this little crevice between the islands and then they sank it. And there's a ship down there, and then I made a swamp over top of it. And there are just weird things like there's coconut fiber near the cove where the flood tunnels were. But, like, coconut fiber isn't native to this hemisphere, so obviously someone had to bring it here. Uh And just just a lot of, like, Rick likes to say, oh, we've got one more puzzle piece, but we're still missing a lot of puzzle pieces. (laughs) (laughs) And... Throughout the seasons, they've tried a bunch of different things. They do ground-penetrating radar. They've drained the swamp a couple times. They do dig exploratory boreholes. And then they... Yeah, they've done shafts. I'm just... It's, like, so hard to remember because they do so many things. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of times when they find things, they get to talk to scientists and different people who can... Sometimes historians who can tell them, Oh, this spike that you found... It's from a 17th century Spanish sailing ship. And this brooch that you found is from this time and things like that. So some of it's really, really cool. Like they found Gary, Gary and Rick found this lead cross Uh and they were able to get it to a scientist and he took a sample of the lead and he, I guess scientists like are awesome and they all talk to each other and stuff but they have this giant database of like where different elements come from so he was able to track that lead into like france this one little region of france wow yeah so some some of it's just like really really cool and they i do want to mention that they found a couple bone fragments down in the uh, one of the holes Uh human bone fragments Uh to be clear (laughs) 
And yeah, I just, I don't know. I have a lot of fun with it. It's something that I like to put on. And even if I don't pay 100% attention, I like to, you know, do crafts while, while watching it. But I've really come to like all the people. They're like, <laughs> they're not like family, but <laughs> I just like them a lot. And I want to, I like, I want to go to Oak Island and just like chat with them Aww. about the mystery and stuff. That's cool. <laughs> And yeah, I want them to succeed. So, well, who knows where it will end up, but they have found a couple really interesting things. I will say it's not it's not for someone who wants immediate gratification. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Even though there are like 16 episodes per season, there are episodes where nothing really happens. They try things and things don't work out. And that that's why it's called The Curse of Oak Island because throughout Oak Island's history, throughout Searcher's history, there's just this kind of acceptance that no matter what you try oak island is not gonna let you get to the heart of the matter which is really interesting and rick will be like well oak island strikes again <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well that's i think that's a great segue into talking about our wrap-up of our like halloween sure. season where we watched some horror movies both of us we did, yeah. And so you had a couple final ones that you wanted to mention, and so did I. So what was one that you watched that was particularly good or particularly scary that you enjoyed? Yeah. So I've been, I guess, upping my tolerance a little bit <laughs> for scary movies. <laughs> and one of the ones, well, we've talked about this on the show. I've watched The Haunting of Hill House, and then we are going to talk about The Haunting of Bly Manor at some point. but. Those were both not created by, but spearheaded by a guy named Mike Flanagan. So Mm -hmm. I've been sort of working my way through his catalog. Cool. Yeah. One of the ones that I really, really liked was called Hush. I think it's from 2016. Mm -hmm. He wrote and directed it. And I think his wife also co-wrote it, Kate Siegel. She plays the lead character. And it's another movie about a writer. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> which you know i love those yep. <laughs> <laughs> so she stars as maddie who is a deaf author uh-huh. and she lives out in the woods basically on her own she's working on her next novel which <laughs> there's actually a, re- a really funny scene toward the beginning she is having trouble she's you know going through writer's block or something she doesn't know how to end the novel and you see her typing and she's just like Something happens, the end, please pay me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, oh, that's so relatable. Yes. (laughs) So she does have a couple neighbors and, you know, it starts out relatively smooth and simple. And you're like, oh, this is kind of a cool life. Like live in the woods and make yourself dinner and go write some. Like, that's awesome. And then. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't end well. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically a home invasion story. Mm. So there's a guy in a mask who shows up and all her doors are locked, but he spends the entire movie trying to get in. He's got a crossbow Mm. and wants to kill. I mean, you don't really know why he wants to kill her besides the fact that you assume that he is a psychopath. But things are complicated by the fact that she's deaf and she's alone in the woods and... I think the thing I liked about it most was Maddie, the main character. She's just really 
I don't want to say strong because I feel like that's overused a lot, but she's very resourceful and makes a lot of interesting decisions, makes a lot of brave decisions, but it is, it is terrifying. I, (laughs) I watched it with a couple friends and my friend Erica is a big horror movie buff. She loves like Hereditary and Midsommar, which I absolutely hated. I was like, these are way too scary. (laughs) And she thought this was scary. Oh, Like scarier than those. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you watch it, I would watch it during the day. (laughs) It's funny that I'm hearing this described. It reminds me so much of a film that I really, really like from the late 1960s called Wait Until Dark, where a woman who's recently gone blind has a home invasion in her apartment. And her her blindness actually works to her advantage because she's able to she breaks all her light bulbs so her attacker cannot see and she can navigate much better not being able to see than he can. So, yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. I think I might check that out. That sounds really interesting, too. I did not know Audrey Hepburn was in it. Yes, that is that is one of Audrey Hepburn's films. And it's it's a. It's a thriller. It's not really marketed as a horror film, but it's a thriller. Yeah. And she's usually known for like romantic comedies and it's she's excellent in it. So I totally recommend that. Awesome. I will put that on my list. Cool. But you've watched a couple too, right? Yeah. So a couple that are very different. So I'll kind of piggyback on talking about an old movie by talking about an old an old horror movie that we watched recently. Um, we watched the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. On a whim, it was Halloween, and my husband and I were looking for, like, let's just kind of scroll through and see what we haven't seen. And we, neither of us had actually seen this, this version of this film. There's multiple versions of this story. It's based on a novel from the late 50s called The Body Snatchers, and they've made several different versions of it. But this is one of the really good ones from 1978 with Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams and a very young Jeff Goldblum and okay. a very, like, weird Leonard Nimoy is also in <laughs> it. <laughs> this bit part. Basically, most of the versions of the story are similar that it starts out that these a strange other like alien entity from another planet travels to Earth, but they're not humanoid at all. They're like gelatinous and they infiltrate the ecosystem and people end up getting infected and then the infection can pass on. So it's a little bit of a zombie thing, but they're not, they're totally still they retain the host's memories. It's just kind of like a like a nefarious sort of parasite basically Mm -hmm. and it takes everybody over and this happens in uh, san francisco and the main people who are kind of on the run from these creatures are people who work in um, the health department and so they're especially attuned to the science of the stuff and it's just very creepy because you can't tell who's been replaced by the pod people and right there's just a lot of like the way they sort of take your they basically replicate your body and then you die, but they have your DNA, essentially, and they know your memories and stuff, but they don't act right. And it's just really, really upsetting. And they, and it's hard to, like, get away from them. And, and you don't know. who I don't know. It's, it's one of those things like a zombie film where you don't know if you've started to get taken over yet. And yeah. you start to get taken over in your sleep. So they <sighs> end up having to stay awake and, and <sighs> run. And it's just so stressful. And yeah. Um, yeah. And poor Jeff Goldblum at one point, he's like, his wife has this weird mud bath spa and he starts getting replicated when he takes a nap there and they find this like fake body in the next room over from his and it's him, but he's all gooey and not done mm. forming yet. And so it's really, really <laughs> gross. And Ew. 
And there's the other thing that I enjoyed about it. It's from 1978. So there's a lot of really funny outfits and cars and you're just like, oh, I like that guy's sideburns. I mean, there's a lot (laughs) of that too. So yeah, there's another thing too, where when the pod people see a regular human, they emit this like ear piercing scream and they point at them. And that is very upsetting. Like, it's really scary. (laughs) Oh, okay. Because you could be running away from somebody and you think they're still normal and all of a sudden they just point at you and scream. And that's also the signal for all the other pod people to come get you. So (sighs) Yeah, yikes. Yeah. so That does sound disturbing. It is disturbing. But because it's older, it's not like super gory. It's not like, there's not a lot of jump scares. It's very, very suspenseful. And so, yeah, I think it's it's a fun it's a fun time, and it's streaming on Prime right now. So okay, cool. Yeah, but you were watching some other ones. You said you had two with similar titles, didn't you? And yeah, sort of accidentally. And I I do want to give a shout out to them both because they're both written and directed by women, which is very cool. Nice. So last night, my friends and I watched a movie called Black Rock from mm-hmm. 2012 because my friend really liked it and she was like you gotta watch it and i know you're trying to watch more scary movies so it's it's not something i would have picked up on my own i don't think so but it's directed by kate asselton based on um her story and then mark duplass wrote the screenplay Mm -hmm. oh sorry katie asselton sorry about that but she stars in it along with lake bell and kate bosworth it's a very small cast Mm -hmm. they're only like six or seven people total and it's set off the coast of maine these three women, their friends, they reunite after some years apart and a big argument a couple years ago. And they go off onto this remote island to camp for a weekend or something. And they end up having to survive something that happens. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it's, I don't really know how to describe it. Some of it is a little bit frustrating because the characters make decisions and you're just like why are you doing that (laughs) but at the same time it's sort of like okay if i were in this situation running for my life i would be scared out of my mind and not be making proper decisions right (laughs) so i was like yeah i totally get that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just i just thought it was pretty interesting because it does center around the three women and their their friendship Overall, I thought it was a really interesting concept. Mm-hmm. And the last shot was is like still in my brain. Oh, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then I watched one called Black Christmas because I was still in the horror mood, but I am also transitioning into a Christmas mood. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, perfect. <laughs> but it's written by Sophia Tikal and April Wolf, and Sophia Tikal directed it based on the film of the same name from the 70s i apologize for not having the exact year (laughs) but it's about a group of sorority sisters who are at their university over christmas break and they get attacked and that's all i will say but there's a little bit more to it than that apparently it wasn't well received i'm on imdb and it only has a 3.3 out of 10 which makes me a little sad But I thought it was really enjoyable. Again, it's very female-centric. All of the main characters are women. Uh And there are some interesting things that go on with their relationships there that I appreciated. So I'm on Letterboxd, which is an app that you can track your movie watching. Uh And other people can leave reviews. It's sort of like Goodreads, but for movies. Uh So I kind of like to scroll through the couple 
the top reviews for each movie that I I watch. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were like, oh, this should have been more violent because it's a P- it's actually a PG-13 movie. Oh. Which is why I was like, I'm okay with watching this. Yeah. <laughs> because if it were R, it would be, I know it would be too gory for me. And I read after I watched it that Sophia Tikal wanted to keep it PG-13 so she could bring in a younger audience of of girls mm. into the horror genre. Oh, cool. And I just thought, yeah, I just thought that was really cool because I feel like it sometimes as a genre, it shuts women out, especially girls who like aren't sure if they're ready for like really gory stuff and they just want to ease their way into the genre. So I actually really, really enjoyed this movie. And I think you might get a kick out of it. It's, it's very feminist. Too. It's very overtly feminist cool. in some of its themes even some of its dialogue so i would recommend it i'd seen previews for it when it was coming out and i did think oh that would that actually looks really good and i never saw the original even though i am an old movie fan but Mm -hmm. yeah i think i might check that out cool it's on hbo max if you get that yeah i'm thinking about it (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and i saw one probably a little bit before halloween in the weeks leading up to halloween called the babysitter from 2017 and this was on netflix and it does have a sequel, but I've heard that the sequel is not very good. So I actually haven't watched that yet. But it's with Samara Weaving and Julia Lewis are the main people. And it's it's billed more as a comedy horror. It's pretty gruesome. So it does get slashery. So I don't know that it's rated, but I think it would be more of an R. But basically, this kid Cole, he's like a young teen. I want to say he's supposed to be like 13 or something. And he does still sometimes have a babysitter named B, And she's I feel like she's supposed to be in late high school or early college, and he's totally secretly has a crush on her. His parents go away for the weekend, and B comes over to to watch him. But when he goes to sleep, she brings some of her friends over, and Cole can't sleep, and he's on the phone, or he's on like a walkie-talkie with his friend who lives next door, and he's like spying on the babysitter and her friends and thinking like, oh, the old older kids are like hanging out and being weird and whatever. And suddenly... All of a sudden, something really disturbing happens, and his oh, entire no. world is rocked, and he realizes B is not all she appears to be, and Ooh. things just get really wild from that point on. There's a lot of really good actors in this. Cole's parents are played by Leslie Bibb and Ken Marino, who are just delightful, and some of B's friends are Robbie Amel. He's been on a lot of CW superhero shows, and he was on uploaded which is an amazon show that's really good Hmm. and bella thorne is her cheerleader friend and they're just kind of even though a lot of horrible things are happening they're like not good people but they're also really funny and it's just kind of like it all ends (laughs) up being this like totally wild chase through the night and it's one of these survive the night movies and cole is just kind of precious and he's very heroic and it's just really really cute and but it is also violent and scary so (laughs) Um, okay. It kind of can work on multiple levels. So I enjoyed it. I did think it was a lot of fun. But yeah. Cool. I I want to watch it, but I don't. I might be a little bit too cool. Yeah, it's, for it's sure. pretty. It gets kind of slasher film-esque. Okay. So yeah, I don't know if it's for you, but our listeners might enjoy it. So yeah. Very cool. Out of all of the scary movies that we watched over the past two months, uh-huh. do you have one that you would recommend to listeners? I really do think Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a classic, and it was it was a lot more fun than I thought it would be. I, I went into it being like, it's short, so if even if it's bad, it's not like that much <laughs> of my night. So 
but I actually ended up really enjoying it. So yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's got a lot of, you know, those themes of dread and fear of the other. And it's just, it's got a lot like subtext going on. So I enjoyed that. Yeah. What about you? Awesome. Yeah. I think I would have to go with Hush. Yeah. Very scary. Very well done. Very good characters. Yeah. Cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, next week, we are going to kind of continue the horror theme a little bit. We're talking to author K.P. Kolsky about her new book, Fairest Flesh. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can follow me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you'd rather email us, you can do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and safe. And join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Pause Pop.